Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Kit McIntosh to discuss the roots of Jamaican ska and American R&B of the 1940s and 50s. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're welcoming back Kit McIntosh for a special discussion about two CD box sets from the Frimo and Associates company out of France with liner notes by Bruno Bloom. I'm talking about the U.S. Jamaica Roots of Ska 1942 to 1962 Rhythm and Blues Shuffle set and the Jamaica Rhythm and Blues 1956 to 1961 set. And perhaps I'm naive, but this stuff was all very new and exciting to me. I had a vague idea that American R&B had influenced the development of ska, but I didn't know they had it this traced out. How about you, Kit? Was this news, or did you already know all this? Uh, well, as you said, I think it was a very vague thing. I think it was something we all knew in a vague sense that there was the influence there, but I think to really hear it happening kind of in real time, track by track, really is quite exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And Bloom has done uh, some incredible work documenting this. And as he says, hopefully it puts an end to the debate about Ska's real origins. And, you know, they've also got a, a really delightful set on Jamaican Mento, uh, the native Jamaican style. And it goes from 1951 to 58. And that stuff, you know, I enjoyed it, but it's much more it's much closer to say what Harry Belafonte is doing and the Calypso kind of sound. And, and you can hear some of the elements that influence ska, but it's really clear that it comes from the shuffle beat, which was immensely popular in America in the 40s and 50s, starting with the great Louis Jordan, who was another guy I was aware of. And when I was a kid, you know, I would see these histories of music and they would have a picture of Louis Jordan or T-Bone Walker. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, give me the Chuck Berry. And now I realize this guy was effing titan of music who, you know, not only is he the father of rhythm and blues, a key player in swing, the evolution of swing, but he's the grandfather of ska, which is pretty amazing. Did you, what, what was your Louis Jordan um, familiarity kit? And did you realize the magnitude of the greatness? <laughs> Well, I mean, I get, you know, our sort of whole cultural memory is so kind of hazy pre, as you say, Chuck Berry and all that. So, no, it was that, again, it's a name you hear, but you don't really pay much heed to. And, uh, and then especially the kind of, yeah, to, to kind of think to, to put it alongside the kind of lineage of Scar and Reggae and all that. No, it hadn't, hadn't occurred to me at all. Yeah, so it was all very surprising, all this, I think. 
Yeah, and it's also interesting that Louis Jordan had done a number of songs that were influenced by Calypso and had cultivated a Caribbean off- audience and actually toured some in the Bahamas. I don't know if he made it to Jamaica or not, but clearly his presence was felt and his records were heard. And this has also helped me understand, you know, we've done a couple episodes uh, with Ryan Harkness in the Techno Roll series and also in the Rap Roll series about the influence of Jamaica on hip hop and the importance of Jamaica as a pioneer of DJ culture. And that was something else I didn't understand because when you hear ska records, it's like, oh, that's a band, you know, it doesn't sound like some revolutionary thing it sounds evolutionary especially when you listen to these r&b songs and the way they just evolve into ska but it was jamaica's dj culture and early adoption of dj culture that led ska and then blue beat and reggae and dub to have such unique characteristics and be such a pioneering thing it's really like a classic example of a very poor society doing a technological leapfrog and kind of skipping over the band era of rock and roll and going right into the DJ era. Did you have any concept of that before you, this particular bit of research? Well, yeah. I mean, so the thing is, the whole sound system culture in Jamaica is this sort of hugely important thing. It's been exported and kind of a mutated into it. So now it's a big part of UK's musical tradition. I mean, where I live in southeast London, this kind of notorious place for these kind of uh, Jamaican sound systems like Jashaka or whatever. So, yeah, no, this is a kind of big part of the kind of a Jamaican musical mythos. And as you say, yeah, it sort of had this huge effect or the huge kind of repercussions or echoes in musical cultures in the states and the uk and everything yeah 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 Yeah, it's 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 amazing and it's kind of the way jamaica it's the explanation for why jamaica has punched above its weight so much in this afro-atlantic diaspora you know cuba is probably its only rival among the caribbean islands as far as musical influence of course cuba is a source for what we call latin music but seems to be from uh reading that sublet seems to have really been a, a preservation of West African drumming culture uh, and and polyrhythms that that eventually got exported all over Latin America and finally up to North America and then into the UK and elsewhere. Um, but yeah, this this whole thing is 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 really fun. And also, Bloom did the research and kind of diagnosed what it was about this shuffle rhythm that made it distinct from previous eras in in classic blues, which is the kind of blues um, sung by Ma Rainey or Bessie Smith, you know, with an orchestra, not not the kind of country blues sung by Charlie Patton or Robert Johnson, but the more orchestrated jazz blues stuff of the 20s. But when you hear the shuffle stuff, particularly in the set of Roots of Ska, at first I'm just going, wow, did Louis Jordan just invent Ska? Because the offbeat is so powerful from that piano and the guitar. But they break it down and they actually know what song is the hinge song and we'll get to that that's actually the first ska song and it basically had to do with the producer calling the drummer and saying i like what we're doing but i want to change the beat give me something new and you know he brought back in a beat that he knew as a traditional african beat and you know added that to what they were doing replaced the the kind of drums that they had on the shuffle style songs and boom that was ska and we'll play that first record later but i want to give another quote um, that's set from Bloom that says, there are ties between shuffle and native Jamaican music forms, revivalist Negro spirituals, gospel, minto, jazz, and nyabingi. And nyabingi is the Rasta style, which self-consciously preserved African drumming and, and, and put it back into the mix of Jamaican culture. But he says, but genuine ska is almost 90% derived from the American shuffle style steeped in jazz and jump blues. And in Jamaica, the disc jockey culture was a determining factor. And that's what I'm talking about. In Jamaica, they literally 95% of the of the population could not afford record players in the 1950s and 60s. So, and they couldn't afford jukeboxes. Like Chris Blackwell was one entrepreneur. He was a Anglo a Jamaican entrepreneur, you know, later famous for Island Records. But his initial business was to import jukeboxes to Jamaica, and 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 you know, people would put coins in just like anywhere else. But the, it was too much of a pain in the ass to keep going back to America and keeping the jukeboxes full of new singles there. There weren't disc jockers that were, you know, uh, that Jamaica was not on the route of, uh, say, Atlantic Records disc jockers. So 
he had to go get in his own. So he just eventually threw in the towel. And what um, they did instead was that DJs would come who had the records and would would play at these parties, and the sound systems to accompany them become more and more elaborate over time. Um, thoughts on that? Like, have you checked out Minto or any other kind of, like, there's also a Jamaican jazz set that I haven't gotten into yet. Oh, but Steph tells me it's time to cue, so let's hear our first song, and then I'll turn it over to Kit. And this is Louis Jordan. It's a low-down, dirty shame. And this is frequently considered one of the first shuffle hits uh, in American, and it wasn't even R&B yet. It was still swing, and it was called race music, and Billboard Jerry Wexler hadn't coined the term rhythm and blues yet. So this is from the early 1940s. Louis Jordan. It's a low-down, dirty shame. It's a low down dirty, dirty, dirty shame. I'm crazy about a married woman, but I'm afraid to And that was Louis Jordan, and it's a low down dirty shame. And before I hand it back to Kit, I want to talk about the elements there because we just heard it, and um, the the. The things to listen for is is the difference between shuffle and ska mainly comes down to the rhythm and mainly on the drums because the instrumentation is nearly the same. It's it's what you would call a jump blues band. So you got drum, uh, acoustic or electric bass, uh, frequently a guitar but not always a piano, and then a horn section. So saxophones and some brass maybe or maybe and in Jamaica of course trombones. And so um, the shuffle is a, is a drummer playing a swing pattern with a walking bass line. And the walking bass line, this is again something I thought, you know, was handed down from the ancients, but it turns out you can trace the walking bass line to a guy named Walter Page, who played bass with Count Basie and Benny Moten in Kansas City. And I did an episode on the evolution of Kansas City swing. So it's basically playing the pentatonic scale and quarter notes rather than just go on the root and the fifth boom, 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 boom on the on the bass. Instead you're you're doing a walking around. And these elements stayed consistent up to 1962 when it became ska. And uh, Coxone Dodd, who we'll talk about more, was a, a sound system magnate and record producer who told his boy Lloyd Nibb, the drummer, hey, man, I want to change this rhythm, find a beat. And so he played the Burrow style or the Notra beat from East Eastern Congo and, and, and that uh, track, one, one Cup of Coffee with Bob Marley, which we'll play later, is the the innovation here but when you listen to this shuffle stuff in this context did it just sound like scott to you or did you hear like a big clear line when suddenly the drums changed well i mean i think the amazing thing about these compilations you really are kind of you it does start to blur very much blur the picture because i think you have this quite nice and neat narrative we tend to be told about scar which is that you have jamaica becomes independent in the early 60s and kind of uh, and quite poetically you also have then this kind of very distinctly jamaican music arise at the same time but with this uh, with this uh, compilation i think that does actually muddy the waters it's not quite so convenient there uh, and i think i suppose the thing is with a lot of uh, afro-american music in the 40s 50s 60s you do have this offbeat emphasis a little bit and i think what the jamaican stuff's doing is slowly drawing it out over the decades uh until it becomes the kind of crux of the music the kind of the hinge rhythmically and everything gets oriented around that so no it's, it's far more kind of a gradual thing rather than this sudden out of nowhere it's complete innovation you go from you know proto scar to scar is actually quite a ambiguous line i think yeah and, and bloom also does a job of connecting shuffle and jump blues with what preceded it which he directly connects it to the boogie woogie piano which which had a big coming out commercially in the 30s late 30s the, the several of the um boogie woogie pianists were featured at john hammond's from spirituals to swing co concert in carnegie hall and the drums are following what the left hand of the boogie woogie piano are doing so something like t-bone shuffle bobby t-bone walker or the jamaica blues by az lawrence feature that and then you combine in that walking bass which was state-of-the-art swing bass playing at this time and the piano right hand, and sometimes the guitar is playing that offbeat, and that's the 
and and the one and a two and a, and so when you're swinging and you're adding that and between the beats emphasizing that and and, and the jamaicans were notoriously fascinated with the offbeat that's something that you see in reggae but also going back in calypso and minto and also in high life and merengue and other caribbean musics and there's a possible connection to new orleans bambora music and this was something i thought was fascinating and something that talking to ned sublet has enlightened me a lot but that the Bantu culture of the Congo was a big influence in Jamaica and New Orleans because a big infusion of people from the Congo, enslaved peoples from the Congos, arrived in Jamaica and New Orleans just before the abolition of slavery. And slavery was abolished in Jamaica in, I think, 1838, well before it was abolished uh, in the States. But, uh, you know, these unfortunate latecomers came and made a big impact because you know New Orleans was one of the few places in continental North America where enslaved peoples were allowed to to play drums and so that kind of drumming style that's one of the reasons New Orleans is so unique musically and it's been kind of this treasure house of American music all this time and um, but it was a, a big impact in uh, Jamaica as well and and um, the he also has this interesting aside about the term shuffle itself. And this is something in my gospel episodes with Garrett Cash we've talked about. This is things called ring shouts where the slaves would go out into the fields at night and the woods away from the masters and have their religious ceremonies. And this is where Afro-American Christianity evolves from, you know, taking, keeping elements of African culture, but also adapting elements from the dominant Western Christian culture and expressing themselves in a desperate way. I mean, these people are enslaved, their culture has been stolen from them. They're being systematically oppressed and, and somehow they managed to keep that torch of culture alive, but they wouldn't dance. They, they, they kept the dancing distinct from the, what they did in other occasions. And, and so they wouldn't cross their feet. And so they would shuffle and they would shuffle around in a circle as they sang. And then later on in the minstrel era in the 1840s, fifties, um, which from my conversations with Del Cockrell, we've learned that that was actually kind of an expression, what the first expression of authentically integrated American culture before it was co-opted by the dominant culture and used as a weapon against Afro-Americans. It was actually the poor Irish and the, and the poor African-Americans in New York City intermingling their style. And so the soft shoe shuffle of people like Juba uh, and, and famous minstrels and where we get the whole tap dancing and soft shoe dancing tradition also comes from shuffle. And then Shuffling was forbidden in Baptist churches, which was the mainline denomination in, in African-American culture in the early 19th and 20th century and still today because they banned all dancing. But Pentecostal churches, which I've discussed with R.J. Smith, started in 1908 in Los Angeles, was this explosion of uninhibited passions that allowed dancing that had instruments. And, and Pentecostalism was a big element in Jamaica, which, again – uh, I did not know. And and so that fervor of Pentecostalism then interacts with Rastas. How much do you know about Rastas and their evolution towards um, what we call rock and roll or ska? Well, I mean, that's very interesting. I do think there are actually some very early examples you get, you know, kind of definitely pre-reggae of uh, Rastafarian like, themes coming into the music, lyrics and so forth. But yeah, so – but. Because we tend to associate it with reggae, you know, the term roots reggae. Um, but no, it's, it's already there in Scar and Rocksteady. Yeah, so it's quite, a, you know, it's a kind of interesting thing. It is very much a pre-70s thing, despite our general uh, association of the music being something from the 70s onwards, really. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought about Rasta as a self-conscious movement, but it was, and self-consciously Afri African. So they were deliberately emphasizing African elements like the Congo drums. And, and we'll play a song later that, that features Count Ossie in his drum section. And that was a distinct Jamaican ingredient that they added to their own domestic R&B records when they started making them um, before it becomes ska. But that was the key ingredient. Also, when when um, uh, Nib, uh, you know, Coxone tells Nib to, to play something different, Lloyd Nib 
went to you know what he'd been hearing from the his Rasta neighbors in the ghetto and 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 caught that. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is another one that was new to me. Everybody knows Millie Small's "My Boy Lollipop," which was the first international ska hit in the early '60s. I had no idea it was a cover and a pretty close cover of Barbie Gaye's 1956 original. Let's hear it. This is "My Boy Lollipop" from Barbie Gaye. And that was Barbie Gaye's original version of My Boy Lollipop from 1956, an American song. Like I said, I had no idea. And I had to listen to it and Millie Small's Jamaican version back to back many times to really hear hear the differences. Personally, I think Millie sang it a little better, but that might be just because I've heard that version so many times. Um, So I'm used to her phrasing and idiosyncrasies. But the Barbie Gaye version is a fine performance. And I really had to listen closely and focus on the drums to hear what makes one an R&B shuffle and makes the other thing ska. What, what was your take on hearing Barbie Gay's version for the first time, Kit? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's sort of uh, uncannily similar. I mean, yeah, as you say, it's very subtle, but it is kind of the uh, the ska version. Yeah, as you say, slightly more offbeat, slightly kind of yeah, slightly more emphasis on that up and down rhythmic motion, and that and it's just that very subtle difference that does kind of uh, distinguish the two, really. But yeah, as you say, very close. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to hear that. And then and there's also this question of like if nobody in Jamaica could buy records, why did they start making their own original records before anybody else? And and that's because you had this sound system culture that evolved. And these guys discovered, you know, I've invested in the sound system, I've hired a DJ. I'm bringing the party. People are coming to the party. I can sell them liquor. And it became very profitable. And there was money to be made. And they discovered that if you had the latest and freshest records, that you got a bigger crowd and sold more liquor. But it was not easy to get the latest and greatest records from America. And so some of these guys figured out, hey, if we record our own records, and originally it was just covers of American songs, we'll have new jams to drop on the crowds and we'll have bigger crowds. So This is another thing I didn't realize until Bloom pointed it out. But in the 1950s, Jamaica produced more rock and roll records than any country but America. They outproduced Britain. They outproduced Australia. They outproduced Canada. And, you know, poor France, et cetera, aren't even in the hunt. At this point, rock and roll is this Anglo world, uh, Anglophonic world phenomenon. And Jamaica has jumped to the front of the line. It's, It's really amazing, and it explains or it goes a long way towards explaining how Jamaica goes from this incredibly poor, isolated country, and in 15 years from making their first R&B records, Bob Marley becomes an international superstar in 1975. Just an amazing cultural triumph from this tiny little country that could. And then the next thing he gets into that I really hadn't thought about was that... um, there's there were contending influences on Jamaican musicians, just like anybody else that's that's coming from a, a you know a hybrid culture that you've got to navigate your influences and kind of create your identity from the pieces of culture that are laying around, you know, from your immediate predecessors. And so there's there were three main contending influences. You had the African influence, which of course is a, a primary route for all Afro-Atlantic musics, but you know, in particular you had Creole music, Junkanoo polka mania and maroon traditions and the maroons were escaped slaves who went and lived in the hills and formed their own cultures you know lived independently for decades in some cases away from the slave masters but you also had these caribbean musics that have had evolved independently in the caribbean from the combination of the african culture with the english and spanish traditions that they were encountering and the native traditions that they were encountering so you had things like mento which is the jamaican um native caribbean music plus Calypso, which is more Trinidad, plus jazz, which was a, a big factor in Jamaica 
uh, from the 20s and 30s onwards. Also, the Latin music, what we call, which is what we tend to call Cuban music or Afro-Latin, Afro-Cuban music, and the military drum tradition. And that, you know, it's easy to forget, but in the 1800s, from the 1700s and 1800s, military drums were this big, amazing new technology that were first made their presence felt on the battlefield and then became an anchor of the marching band tradition, which was the shit uh, in, you know, the 1800s. But you also had the big American influence and, you know, they were drawn to jazz, like I said, but also gospel, R&B and the nascent rock and roll and country and Western, which was, I was pleased to see get a shout out. And they said that country and Western was very popular and how are they hearing this stuff if they don't have records and they and they're too poor for the most part? You know, the white folks could go and hear sweet dance bands, which is the kind of dance orchestras with strings like Guy Lombardo or Paul Whiteman, and then some hot bands, which is more on the jazz side of the spectrum. But those two things that kind of blend it. Most your average black Jamaican could not afford to go and see a live band, and so they were hearing the radio. W-I-N-Z out of Miami had African-American DJs and they were playing jazz and R&B. And then they get into this eccentric, I don't know that it's eccentric, but it's interesting to me that Little Richard and his band, The Upsetters, are famous in Jamaica or were famous in Jamaica. And of course, there's many bands, there's the famous Jamaican Upsetters, which took the name. But Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis were not so big in Jamaica. And I wonder, do you think that's a function of the W-I-N-Z playlist or just a matter of cultural affinity that the folks in Jamaica just felt more affinity for a little richer than they did for Jerry Lee. That is interesting. It may, I mean, it may well be the playlist. I mean, even to me, there's a sort of an electricity with Little Richard that you don't really get from many other people during the era. You know, and you could sort of, his kind of a vocal extremity, you could see sort of a, the kind of a, it's sort of similar to the kind of extreme vocal traditions you get in Jamaica. So it could it could be a kind of almost a cultural temperament that kind of a uh, draws them to certain acts and not to others, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. It, I guess you'd have to look at the playlist from WINZ and interview uh, if what living Jamaicans you can find now who remember the 50s or hopefully somebody interviewed them while they were alive. But another factor that made the shuffle especially popular in Jamaica, because in the States that was kind of a style of, of dance music, but it was just one subset of the nascent R&B brew. You know, you had a lot of um, harmony groups uh, and, and um, you know, smoother songs, ballads that would be a big part of the blend in American R&B. But in Jamaica, they emphasized the shuffles because they heard it in dance halls. They weren't hearing it to sit down and listen to. They were hearing it in places where they were dancing. So the shuffles were especially, especially popular. Um, and then Let's see. He has a little aside about the popularity of country music, and, and they have a cover of Bloodshot Eyes uh, by Denzel Lang on the set that um, is pretty interesting because, you know, that was a classic case of a country song by Hank Penny that was on King Records. And so he uh, made Winoni Harris do a cover version to get the, you know, more royalties for his publishing since he owned the publishing on that. But Winoni Harris's version of Bloodshot, Bloodshot Eyes is probably the one that's become a standard. And and um, it does stick out like a sore thumb in this set a little bit, but it's nice to see that the country music uh, also, you know, uh, has this broad appeal Although, you know, oddly enough, apparently when Elvis mixed country with, with R&B, that didn't click for Jamaicans. Um, let's see. And I've already talked a little bit about the business background. And then the other factor, though, that that you don't hear on this set is that the Jamaican DJs were already toasting on the mic at this point in time. But it doesn't get recorded until the mid-1960s when King Stitt and Uroy and other DJs pioneer that uh, on record. And again, another case of Jamaica just being ahead of the game. You're not going to hear hip-hop doing this until the 1970s in America and you're not going to hear them recorded until the early you know late 70s early 1980s and really don't get the full sound on wax until the mid 1980s with Run DMC so uh yeah I don't know I mean it, it's just fascinating to me that Jamaica was this far ahead of the game and and the way that culture seems to work such that these people on the periphery of the culture in places like Jamaica uh, or poor New Orleans or Memphis um, become 
so you know preserve some power channel some power that's so powerful that it, that it knocks the whole dominant culture on its ear and, and and you know when combined with mass broadcast media allows these people to have this immense cultural reach and i also found it fascinating like we should also mention some of the uh, other artists besides louis jordan that were big uh, with Jamaican audiences and uh, uh, Roscoe Gordon, who's a Memphis pianist, T-Bone Walker, who is a Dallas uh, blues guitarist, Johnny Otis, who is a, a Greek uh, 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 band leader who became sort of an honorary black man and 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 totally you know married black women, played R&B, lived in black culture, wrote columns for black newspapers, and. Um, and then, you know, you also had Little Esther and Johnny Guitar Watson and B.B. King. There were other favorites. But let's go here, ahead and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll start talking about the evolution towards ska. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So before the break, I was kind of talking about this cultural dilemma that Jamaican musicians were facing and having to choose between or choose elements from each of these traditions, but but between the African traditions, the Caribbean traditions, and the American traditions. And Bloom argues that the that the American tradition was absolutely 90% dominant. And and he even says that, you know, that the um Jamaican musicians were drawn to the economic, technological, and cultural superiority of America at this point in time. And speaking from decadent, rotten, failing America of 2022, and I'm not even going to ask you how Britain's doing this year, (laughs) (laughs) but it's funny to think just 70 years ago that American culture was this vibrant and this vigorous. Was Was that... Did that sort of shock you as well to, to think about that contrast? Well, it, I mean, it is funny, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's funny that kind of, that total symbiotic relationship you have with American music and uh, Jamaican music. I was thinking about, well, as you say, so the thing with the toasting, which is kind of Jamaica's proto version of rap, I think that came from uh, Jamaican artists sort of doing impressions of like American jive talk on the radio. So it's kind of their their take on that, and that evolved into this thing that's more like rapping. And then you have a similar thing of in the seventies. Uh, you know, you had kind of among the kind of rock stars. You know, Eric, your Eric Clapton, your Keith Richards, your John Lennon. Reggae became very fashionable, and a lot of the ways you hear people like John Lennon or Keith Richards talk about it is this kind of almost as if reggae was this return to rock and roll. That kind of rock had lost its way, I guess, with the kind of birth of hard rock, and actually all these kind of nostalgic rock stars with you know who wanted chuck berry again they actually felt jamaica was was offering that so i think it is yeah it's sort of fascinating how how actually to a lot of ears and probably more so back then that actually yeah jamaica was kind of harkens back to this american cultural golden age or this kind of rock and roll musical golden age 
Yeah, and and it's an era when America was bursting with confidence, had won World War II, had 3% of the world's population and 25% of the world's GDP. So, of course, we were <laughs> confident. You know, we've just looted the world and, um, and are producing Cadillacs and Coca-Cola and Hollywood movies and rock and roll, which people loved. I mean, this was a point in time when American cultural exports were actually welcomed and were refreshing and, and really compelling to young generations in Jamaica and England and other places on the periphery of empire. And it's 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 fascinating to think, you know, how relatively quickly that's all changed. I don't know that it's all changed, but it certainly feels that way. I mean, I I, I don't see songs praising Teslas and and you know energy drinks or whatever really seizing the world's attention. But maybe I'm missing mm-hmm. out. Um, <laughs> but let's get into the to the evolution of the the Jamaican record industry because it's really an odd way to go. So you had people like uh, Clement Coxone Dodd, who's up and running his sound systems by 1954. Like I said before, he realized, you know, if he had his own records, uh, if he had new records to play, that he would get more dancers buying liquor at his at his parties. And so he discovered that it wasn't that hard to make records. There was a guy, um, Ken Corey, who opened a studio in 1954, and he was recording and pressing licensed records from Mercury Records, which was a mid-sized American record company, I believe out of Chicago in that period. But it wasn't that hard for somebody like Cox and Dodd, who's a real go-getter, to put together a band of these guys who are playing jazz and, um, you know, the Jamaican clubs on the fancy side of the island for white people. And, and as so often was the case, jazz musicians were perfectly suited to play in R&B. And it's interesting because it seems like white jazz musicians in particular struggled with playing rock and roll. And I know British jazz musicians were really bad at playing, trying to play R&B or rock and roll. But these some jazz musicians, like I'm thinking of the, the Motown house band, the Funk Brothers in particular, were obviously incredibly great R&B musicians. And that seems to be the case in Jamaica, where very quickly he puts together, um, you know, an all-star band, um, Clue J and his blue blues blasters and put Cox and Dodd put them together in 55 or 56. And you had Cluett Johnson on bass, and he was the leader of the band. You had a guy called Drumbago, Drumbago, who was the drummer, Ernest Wranglin, who was a serious jazz guitarist on guitar, and Rico Rodriguez on trombone. Of course, he was trained by the great Don Drummond, who's you know going to go on and, and lead the Scatolites and um, you know kind of be the I'd say maybe the primary musical force in ska at its peak. But classically, Cox and Dodd puts this band together, and in no time at all, they're going to work for his rival, Duke Reed, of the Trojan sound system. So, um, you know, you've got these multiple characters. You've got, you know, Duke Reed with the Trojan sound. He starts recording in, at Corey's in 1958. And at first, they're just printing up acetates that they can play at the parties. And eventually they figure out, oh, I can make even more money if I press these into records that people can buy. Um, although it was, you know, pretty small market. Like I said, 95% of the population didn't have the money to buy records. But since they're making the records anyway for the parties, you know, they're going to make the record, and it turns into this whole, you know, industry in Jamaica where, you know, the proof's in the pudding. They made more rock and roll records than any other country other than the U.S. and in the 50s, and way more credible. You know, Britain doesn't even get a handle on it until Cliff Richards move on and. I think 58, 57, 58. And, you know, the earlier stuff is pretty feeble, but the Jamaicans are making credible rock right out uh, off the jump. And you also had people like Prince Buster, who starts out as Coxone's right-hand man, and pretty soon he's a record producer and has his own sound system, the voice of the people. And so you've got this vibrant competitive system. And then you get Chris Blackwell coming in, and he uh, takes this stuff international and and, you know, realizes that there's a market in Britain that would be a a place where you could make real money uh, making these records. And pretty soon you've got native-born R&B stores, stars like Laurel Aikens, uh, whose Boogie in My Bones record is is pretty big. And then Derek Morgan is another one, the second uh, Jamaican R&B store. Laurel Aikens ends up going to Britain pretty early on. And then, um, you know, Derek Morgan is so big in Jamaica that at one point in 1960, he had the top seven records in the sales charts. And it's a pretty small market, but still, that's a pretty big triumph. And it makes me think of two artists. One is Louis Jordan, 
who had entire years in the 1940s when more often than not there was a Louis Jordan at the number one slot in the R&B charts. Uh, that means, you know, out of 52 weeks of the year, more than 30 would be an, a Louis Jordan record in the number one spot. And then the other artist that is that dominant, of course, is the Beatles, who had something like four out, or seven out of the top 10 records in the American singles charts in 1964. So Derek Morgan, for a brief time, was incredibly dominant in Jamaica. And let's go ahead and hear our uh, next song. This is our first Jamaican song. This is the Folks Brothers, produced by Prince Buster. And he brought in Count Aussie uh, for the Rasta drums. This is O Carolina. Carolina by the Folks Brothers with Count Aussie uh, on the percussion produced by Prince Buster. What did you make of these kind of early experiments in adding Afro and Jamaican elements to the R&B mix? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's amazing because so that, that kind of drumming I'd associate with Naya Bingi, which is a kind of a, a Rastafarian tradition of doing, you know, kind of African, traditional African drumming that you kind of preserved in Jamaica as a part of a religious and cultural thing. And so, you'd, I, you know, I usually associate that with kind of a dub from the late 70s, you know, kind of of a Burning Spear albums and stuff, you know, drenched in all these drums. So it's kind of amazing to hear it in something so old and, and in, a, in a kind of totally different cultural context that that sounds much more kind of sugary and kind of fun yeah it doesn't have doesn't have that kind of raster militancy but it's got the drum so it's kind of yeah so total collision of two time periods for me really it's sort of one one foot in the kind of 60s 50s and 60s and then another foot yeah in this kind of more raster 70s so it's kind of a, a, an amazing and bizarre record really yeah yeah, and it's interesting to me how frequently the same ingredient will, or the same inspirational source will be added to a mix at different times and different aspects of it will be emphasized. And like you said, this is more to me like the sort of Board of Tourists approved version, whereas like when you hear these kind of Rasta drums in the 70s, it's anything. It's the cut the tourist throat version, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so it's just interesting to me how you can take these same elements or the same inspiration and, and bring out different aspects of it and have a totally different cultural impact. And um, so, yeah, it's just, this was clearly a time of, of just exciting and fervent uh, cultural, cultural mixing. And, you know, it's, it's the other thing about ska is of course, at this point in time, you associate ska with this international movement that it became starting in the 1970s. And, you know, you had hits, obviously, like Millie Small and, and Chris Blackwell succeeded in bringing a number of ska records to the international market. And of course, they were very dominant in Jamaica. But it, it was a pretty brief period. And it and it, I don't think people that heard, say, uh, you know, the random Millie Small or Desmond Decker or early Bob Marley record really thought of it as a movement or a distinct thing. It was just kind of a novelty record, a different kind of sound from the Caribbean that pop bubbled up to the surface. But then in the 70s, a new generation of British musicians uh, of both, uh, you know, uh, white Anglo and and uh, uh, Caribbean Anglo or uh, yeah, Caribbean Anglo uh, roots became aware of ska. You know, Jamaica reggae at this point had become rock star music. I mean, Bob Marley was selling massive records and touring. You know, just like Pink Floyd or any other rock star to big audiences, and these kids were one upset and frightened by the crackdown of Thatcherism that that was happening and the rise of the National Front or the reemergence uh, of you know fascist racist uh, extreme right wingers in Britain and they deliberately hearkened back to a previous generation of the first skinheads or suedeheads who were very self-consciously proud of 
integrating with the Jamaican community in Britain and into ska and, you know, shaving their head and wearing the braces and the boots and, and avoiding prog rock and psychedelic rock and saying, you know, we liked, we liked soul dancing and we're going to do ska dancing now. Thank you very much. And so this two-tone movement formed in bands like the specials and the selector and the beat and madness and even, you know, more mainstream punk groups like the clash who would, who, you know, did police and thieves and wrong and boyo and various songs. They revived ska in the late 70s as this explicitly anti-racist movement, and it was very big in Britain for a couple of years and impacted the states. But then in, in the 80s and eventually in the 90s, it's you know, it bubbles under in the States for a full 10 years and then explodes in this third wave of ska and punk ska with bands like The Offspring. Fishbone in the 80s was, was a pioneer. You know, it becomes this, frankly, kind of embarrassing pop movement in the 90s um i don't want to bag on it too much but it's, it was a movement that was really popular in the 90s and then immediately unpopular in the 2000s and and i don't know how do you disentangle like original ska from from what ska rot internationally i mean i, I suppose it's quite easy really because it is just you know you sort of come coming from a totally different time a different kind of a cultural place you've got different accents on it the kind of the production quality is different you know kind of a guy in a way it's actually kind of hard to reconcile you know various different iterations of it they're all called scar and you can see why because they've got sort of similar rhythmic sensibility but uh i think that each one of them does represent just a totally different mood aesthetic kind of zeitgeist time so i think yeah i think you do you capture something in that early stuff that i don't really think gets tainted by any kind of revivalism elsewhere at different times yeah yeah you certainly can't blame you know bob marley at all for no doubt and not that no doubt's a crime or anything but it's just you know mm -hmm. it's a very different mm -hmm. very very different thing and and when you listen to these proto ska and then the first ska records which i highly recommend diving into like the first whalers album or um you know the early toots and the maytals all that stuff there's such a palpable vibrancy and excitement you can feel that Jamaica is an independent country to me. I mean, this is really a culture throwing off the shackles and appropriating, appropriating like mad, taking what they want from American culture and taking what they want from Caribbean culture, taking what they want from African culture and creating their own new thing and kind of announcing to the world, Jamaica is here. And to me, it's just really powerful and inspiring that this poor, benighted country on the periphery of empire makes this music and 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 it's also amazing to me that bob marley is here right from the beginning and goes on to you know preside over the evolution of ska into blue beat and then into, into reggae or rock, into rocksteady and then into reggae and then conquers the world and becomes this you know world cultural figure on a level with muhammad ali or the beatles i mean literally one of the most famous people on earth to this day and also kind of the first third world figure to achieve that kind of cultural primacy in the in the anglo-american sphere so as humble as these origins are i mean you know you're thinking about cox and dodd wanting to sell booze to 150 400 people at a time in a kingston ghetto and in 15 years they've conquered the world it's i don't inspiring for lack of a better world word if um what's your take on this whole yeah i mean i mean it is incredible kind of a cultural turnaround i mean just even today the fact that jamaica is such a small place and produces so much kind of culture is amazing um i think i mean also i think the kind of yeah, it's important that legacy of that scar and all this proto scar we're talking about, really, because it, it does invent a rhythmic language that kind of you, you, cause sustains Jamaica for kind of another 20 years. It's only till dancehall emerges in the 80s that Jamaica sort of switches its rhythmic palette. But you really do have a thing kind of through scar, rock steady, uh, you know, reggae, dub. They're all built around this kind of offbeat emphasis that we kind of see being or hear being birthed in these uh, proto-scar compilation albums. 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear uh, what Bruno Bloom calls the hinge song. And this is what he, the song he feels is the switch from Jamaican R&B to true ska. This is Bob Marley's One Cup of Coffee with Lloyd Nip on drums. Bob Marley from 1961. I want to say it might have been 1962. One more cup of coffee. And Bruno Bloom, as I said, calls that the hinge record where uh, you can hear it go from R&B to ska. And what do you think about this stuff? Like I've, I've had scholars take me to task for getting too into the myth of we know, you know, there's certain genres where we believe we know this was the first instance of it and it happened in a recording studio and we, you know, we know when and where it happened or something like hip hop. Well, you know, DJ Cool Herc didn't record, but we know the date and place of the first quote unquote hip hop party. Do you really feel like you can boil Scott down to this is this moment? Coxone Dodd told Lloyd Nib to play a different kind of drum and boom, that's it. Or do you feel like it's more of a spectrum? Uh, I mean, to, to give you a cowardly answer, I think it's a bit of both. I think you can you can make an argument for being a spectrum, but then also you sort of, I think there are these real, you know, to use the phrase hinge points, there are these, these kind of moments of change that are, that are, that go beyond just being a moment on a spectrum that really are kind of a change in the whole thing. And I think, uh, you know, I think the, these moments definitely, I think in terms of the evolution of going from this vague idea of proto-scar to something that's very recognizably and, um, you know, concretely scar music, I think you can point to, you know, these one, two, three, four, five tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the set, you know, really makes it possible to hear that because like there's a track um, by Bob, Bob Marley called Judge Not from 1962 that, that, you know, Bloom says this is shuffle, not ska. And when you go and you listen closely, and particularly if you follow the drums closely and count what the drums are doing, it is different. And um, I don't know that that's kind of the amazing thing about history to me is just oh, we know the time and place where these sort of monumental uh, cultural innovations took place. And it's also kind of the whole fascinate or the whole project of Let It Roll is this fascination with the idea that recording music and distributing music via radio and record and CD and streaming is this unique thing in the history of the world. And we've always had music and we've made music together, but it's only been this last 150 years or so, 120 years or so that we can, that, that it was possible for somebody like Bob Marley to, make music so powerful that it could then be packaged and distributed and broadcast and reach people all over the world and have this kind of impact. I mean, obviously you had musicians who made massive impacts and even that were famous. I mean, going back, you know, um, Franz Liszt had Listomania, which was kind of a Beatlemania or Frank Sinatra mania style thing going on in the 1800s in Europe. You know, somebody like Paganini was was playing, you know, to packed concert halls, and and you know, you had other performers that were touring America. Uh, you know, opera stars of the 1800s that were touring America, but they couldn't make records. They couldn't be on TV. They weren't seen and known by as many people. And even really, you can look at that process of paid concerts and promoted concerts and printed sheet music as part of this technological process, which is kind of why I broadened the scope of Let It Roll. My goal is to go back now to the beginning of the first time somebody sold sheet music, the first time somebody copyrighted a song, the first time somebody sold tickets to an opera or a concert, because that's really, I think, the contagion. And that's the the mix that we're talking about is this mix of commerce, technology, and culture that blends together and creates these unanticipated explosions because I certainly don't think that the powers that be 
in the heart of the British Empire and then the heart of the American successor empire, if they were really paying attention and really understood how cultural works, I don't think they would have handed it over to Jamaicans <laughs> to, to, to influence these people. I mean, it's not like somebody said, I know we need to let this Randy Scouse get John Lennon have this massive influence over the next two generations. You know, nobody ever sat down and said, Bob Marley, that's what the world needs. Bob Marley came out of nowhere and took that throne. And it's just amazing to me to see it documented and we can we can understand and there were so many people you know Cox and Dodd and Duke Reed and and you know Don Drummond and Chris Blackwell all these people contributing their part to this cultural revolution that I don't know it, it doesn't seem like it's saving the world but it's making it more entertaining as we go down the <laughs> well, what's your take on that do you feel like like Bob Marley got a hold of the wizard's ring and and took over the world, or or yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, because yeah, because he's he's clearly um, you know, he's clearly more of an influence than you know, you kind of uh, Bernie Spears or whoever. He's sort of bigger, you know, and uh, and I think it probably goes back to this whole thing. I think that's sort of been this running theme throughout this our whole chat, really, which has been this kind of a um, American and Jamaican back and forth and symbiosis. I think the thing is that. He he has a thing where, for all the stuff where he's got the you know he's got the he's got the great look he's got the he's got this brilliant sort of this amazing kind of mythological ideology communicating with the music he's got obviously kind of introducing reggae to people he 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 at his heart just writes these great pop songs which I'm which I think is the kind of key to making these people big legendary huge cultural figures so you know the Beatles had it as well and I guess that would have really come from him being immersed in all this american stuff when he was young you know that he's kind of even as the music evolves he's he's still got these kind of roots in r&b and in gospel and whatever else that he's communicating even as it becomes you know scar and it becomes rocksteady and it becomes reggae and so yeah i think he's kind of that, that huge cultural influence that he managed to have i think a large part of that is him being immersed in all this stuff that is the same kind of milieu that gave us scar really yeah, absolutely. I love the idea of Bob Marley, you know, appropriating like a madman. English language, I'll take it. You know, three-minute song structures, I'll take it. Uh, Well-tempered clavier, I'll take it. The key system, I'll take it. And I'm going to add these African elements, and I'm going to basically be the musical Che Guevara and conquer the world and stick it to you. You know, it's – I don't know. To me, it's like that's what music – the the best case for music is that somebody like Bob Marley can use it to resist the control that's been imposed on him as a poor person on the periphery of empire, the descendant of enslaved peoples that, you know, were literally the meat in the meat grinder to make this incredibly obscene, wealthy military empire of first English and then American and turn it on its head and, and bring us this music and bring music all you know, to all the peoples of the world. And, you know, I think uh, offer a shed of forgiveness to the Americans and Anglos that, that are also mm -hmm. involuntary participants in this, you know, sort of global blood-soaked nightmare. Um, and, and, and here we are. So Kit McIntosh has been my guest, the author of Neon Screams, who's been on the show before and will be back again. And then we've been discussing the wonderful Fremo and Associates uh, box sets, The Roots of Ska, 1942 to 1962, and Jamaica Rhythm and Blues, 1956 to 1961, both with notes in French and in translation by Bruno Blom. So thanks so much, Kit, and hope to have you back soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes David Leaf to discuss Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myths. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 